So, this evening, I'd like to speak with you some about the, I think some of the foundation principles of the, of the meditation practice as it really applies to our life and as it applies to our experience. And the, in a way, the teachings and the, the foundation teachings from which this practice comes. In a way, the, the beginning point of, of spiritual life, the beginning point of, of practice, is a recognition of the, of the wish that we have to find satisfaction, the wish that we have to find an authentic and a meaningful way of being in our lives and a way of experiencing what it means to exist, what it means to be alive. And Yet what we often find in this movement of our hearts and minds towards our own well-being, towards the well-being of others, is that this perhaps does not seem to have been supported by some of the most powerful currents and tendencies of our life, by some of the, it seems, predominant values of our culture and equally the predominant values or tendencies that we might find within our own hearts and minds. And I'd like to speak first of perhaps the most predominant and powerful of these which we encounter, which is really the power of desire, the power of wanting, that expresses itself both in wanting things to be a certain way, or equally wanting things to not be a certain way. And essentially it's the same movement, it's the same tendency. And we can see that desire is a powerful force in our society. We can see how it drives so many institutions, it drives so much activity, so much busyness. And we can see equally in our own minds the movement of desire, the power that it has to carry us along towards one experience that we wish for, to seek us or to require us almost it feels to to flee from another which we wish to not be having. And we see this perhaps time and time again in meditation, when we're yearning towards that peaceful moment that we had in the sitting before, that was just there for a moment and then it was gone. And yet so much we long to get back to that place. Or when we're experiencing a pain in the knee or a, a difficult emotion arising in our mind and heart, how much we long for the end of that, how much we wish for that not to be there. And we see that the movement of desire, the movement of wanting or not wanting is something that we're very familiar with and something that perhaps we've, we've gone along with, we've given license to in a way that perhaps hasn't served us. And we can see if we look at our life and if we look at the world around us, we can see the effects of greed. We can see the effects of rampant desire and that those who are successful in getting and accumulating and accumulating more tends to leave those others who have little or none and our Western culture so successful in getting so much for its rather privileged inhabitants and yet so much at the expense of people who have very little in other parts of the world. And yet this tendency of wanting, this tendency of 
seeking to get, to acquire, to accumulate, is incredibly pervasive and at times unquestioned within ourselves and within our world. And it has a, it seems a rather miraculous quality about it in which or whereby it just constantly finds something to want. Have you noticed that within yourself? How we can find always something to want. And there's a lovely story that perhaps illustrates how far this goes sometime. The Dalai Lama, who's a, um, I think, quite well-known and rather wonderful teacher of the Dharma and meditation. And he was at a conference in New York. He, he told the story to a, a friend. And um, he was at this conference in New York with his friend, his fellow teacher. And uh, he was driving every day from his hotel to the conference site for a whole week. And where his, his journey would take him was through this street which sold this vast array of electrical um, appliances and equipment. And the Dalai Lama is rather well known for a rather charming fascination with all items of technology and particularly electrical equipment and that's something he often teases himself about. But in this situation he described how every time he drove down that road or was in fact driven down that road to the conference in the morning his eyes would get wider and wider as he looked at all these different appliances and all these different electrical things in the window. And he said that after five or six days he found himself desperately wanting things and he didn't even know what they were. And sometimes we can see that this is perhaps not so far removed from ourselves. Some of the things we seek for and yearn for, that we perhaps even believe will make us happy, are things we may never have had before. We may not even really know what they are. And yet, we somehow find ourselves drawn towards them, seeking after them. And we can see that so easily we act this out in our life. We seek to get a better job, a nicer house, the perfect relationship, all the things that we want, that when we get them we hope, we wish, we pray perhaps that they'll actually make us happy, that we'll feel satisfied when we finally get what we want, when we finally get rid of all the things we don't want, when we can move away from those annoying neighbours, when we can actually um, you know, turn the tables on our boss, when we can finally remove from our experience the things that we do not want, we tell ourselves that then we'll be happy, that then we'll be satisfied. And yet it seems like we can spend our whole life in this pursuit. And perhaps if we have spent much of our life so far engaging it, we may ask ourselves, has it brought me any closer to true happiness? Has it really given me deep satisfaction? And we may answer that question, no, if we're honest if we have the courage to say that to ourselves. And we might turn perhaps more away from the materialistic pursuits of gaining and avoiding the things around us of the world. And we often can enter into a spiritual journey, which rather easily, however, we start to relate to in very much the same way. We think, well, when I can just get more of this sort of quality of kindness or heartfulness, when I can just get rid of my anger and my fear, when I can finally fix all the problems that I find inside myself, then I'll be happy. And in a way, again, we, we put our happiness somewhere in front of us, somewhere distant from us, and say that when we satisfy all these conditions, when we finally get all the things that we want, 
or think we should have. When we finally get rid of all the things which we don't want, which we don't like, which we think we shouldn't have to deal with in our inner world, we say, then I'll be happy. And yet, we can find that just as with the things of the world, which even when we get them, when we get the things that we seek for, they perhaps give us a brief respite. We feel good for a moment when we finally bought that new car or that new shirt or that new dress and we just for a moment feel good and then in the next moment we want something new, we want something different. And equally within ourselves we find that just when we finally got that moment of peace, when our mind has finally stopped chattering away, about two or three perhaps, maybe four seconds later we're starting to think, well this is rather boring, what's happening next? And we see that the things that we're seeking after, even when we get them, we're very rarely satisfied, we're very rarely happy in that place. And what we find is that even when we do gain things and secure things for ourselves, that we really do value and appreciate, very often we can't rely on them staying there. We may have the job we really wished for, and yet we may find out that perhaps they're that the company we work for is in trouble and our job may not be secure. And so that which we'd longed for and finally gained actually becomes something we become anxious and worried about. We might find eventually that we do, that we do manage to avoid or find a way around some difficult experience. Perhaps we've finally found a way in the meditation to finally sort of adjust our body and our posture so we don't actually get a pain in our knee. And we're just so relieved at it and then rather soon our ankle starts to hurt. And we see that there's no real place that we can rest. There's no real place that we get to where we feel comfortable in this this relentless and it sometimes seems unstoppable energy of pursuing and avoiding. We see that the things which come to us, don't stay around. Whether they be conditions around us, such as a relationship that comes, that perhaps we wish it to be for our life, and perhaps it is. But perhaps the relationship ends. Maybe one of us dies, maybe one of us chooses to leave. And we see that even though something that brought us great happiness does not stay around forever, we cannot rest our happiness entirely within that. We cannot base our satisfaction and our well-being upon things which come and go, upon things which change. And we see in our practice as we observe our breath that it simply comes for a moment and it might be a nice long deep breath, the one we've been waiting for. But what happens if we try and hold on to it? We can't, it's not possible, it has to come to an end. And then it has to come, we have to change, it changes into an out-breath and flows out. And equally so, everything that comes to us, every experience that arises, passes on. And that this fundamental reality of all experience, that whatever comes must pass, that whatever arises must fall, that we see and we start to understand that if this is the truth, and we see in our experience that that is so, we come to understand that perhaps we need to look at our life in a different way. 
perhaps we need to find another way of meeting our experience rather than in the rather unquestioned and rather overrated acting out of our wanting and acting out of our not wanting. And we perhaps also start to get a sense that the that the possibility of satisfaction lies somewhere else in something deeper or something different. <coughs> and yet it's sometimes very hard to break through the compulsion of wanting. There's a a story told about the old Sufi master and idiot Mullah Nasruddin who often acts in rather strange ways in order to show people what they're doing. And it's told that once Mullah was, the Mullah was um, sitting in the marketplace with a large pile of chilies beside him. He was eating them one at a time. And every time he would bite into and start chewing on these chilies, tears would pour out of his eyes, his nose would be running, his face was flushed. And he was obviously really suffering. It was really uncomfortable. And yet, every time he would just eat one chili, put down the stalk, pick up another chili and eat it. And his friends came around and said, Nasruddin, what are you doing? I don't understand, what are you doing? And he said, replied the mullah, he said, well, I'm just eating these chilies because I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> and there's a way that sometimes we, we're always living in that hope. We're always living in that expectation or that wish that Somehow the next thing, the next place, the next meditation retreat, the next sitting, the next relationship, the next job, somehow out there will be satisfaction. And yet we don't, start, we don't see that actually that movement of wanting, that movement of desire itself, that this is something we need to give attention to, that we need to understand. Because when... In our conventional way of thinking about it, we say that we want something. We want a piece of chocolate. Now, maybe it's occurred to someone on this day that it would be rather nice to have a piece of chocolate. Maybe not. I'm sorry if I put the idea into your head. (laughs) But just assuming that it might have. And we think, if I could get that piece of chocolate, I'd be happy. I'd feel okay. I'd feel that it was really worth all this hard work. And yet, even if we got it, what happens... It's that in that wanting, it's actually the sense of desire, the wanting that's so uncomfortable, that's so painful. It's not the lack of the piece of chocolate. It's the wanting that's so unpleasant, that's so painful for us. And so what we enjoy about getting the piece of chocolate is not so much the piece of chocolate, but that we get for perhaps a few moments relief from that wanting. Relief from that wanting. And equally, when it's something we don't want, when there's the person sitting beside us who just somehow seems to have decided to be breathing rather loudly, just just particularly to help us stay awake. And we're sure that they've decided that, and it's probably from the goodness of their heart, but really, we'd really wish that they would stop. And and we see how how, how we can get caught up in that. I really think I I could really meditate, I'd really get it, you know, if only that person would not breathe so loudly. And then, at some point, perhaps, their breathing becomes quiet. Or we stop noticing it because something else is happening. And there's a relief from that that not wanting, that wanting it to go away. And again, it's not because of the absence of the experience. 
it's because we've been we've found relief from that wanting. And yet, if we spend our life trying to chase after, to pursue things that we want, or to avoid things that we don't want, we spend our life running away and running after. And all the time, the very thing we're running away from, the very thing we're running after, is actually within us. That we can't run away from our desire. We can't escape our aversion, our not wanting. That comes with us as we run. And consequently, we never escape it. And so we really have to turn our attention to this process to see what happens. To see what happens in our body, in our mind, in our heart. When we really address this question of life, to see that if, we, that if we just act it out all the time, it's like, as I said, we get carried away by it. We live our life as a driven person, driven from one thing to the next, away from one thing towards another. And yet, when we see how painful, how difficult this is, what we sometimes do is start struggling with the very fact that it arises, thinking that now I have to get rid of this, I have to stop this wanting from coming up, I have to stop this aversion from arising. And perhaps you've had thoughts like this today. Because it's so painful, it's so difficult when it's there. We see that in our natural response, our very common response is to want to get rid of it. And yet what we don't realise is that trying to get rid of it, we're really just acting in the same old way. Trying to get rid of the thing we don't like, the thing that is painful. And so to act it out, to be carried away by it is really no help, no solution. Nor yet to fight with it, to struggle with it. That's no solution either. And this may seem like we're in a hopeless position, but fortunately, that's not the case. Because really, what we can find, and what we're invited to find in our practice, in our moment-to-moment attention, is a place of balance, where we find a balance between being carried away by the movements of desire and wanting, when we believe in them, when we feel we must act them out. A balance between that place and the place where we feel only when we get rid of them or when we can stop them arising at all will we then be able to be happy or be at peace. In finding this balance, it's very important to understand how it is that the power of wanting, the power of not wanting, arises in us. And if we look at our experience, if we look at what goes on for us, what we see is that every experience, every experience that we contact, that we are touched by, whether it be a sight, a sound, a smell, a body sensation, a taste, or a thought or an emotion, which pretty much is the totality of our experience, whatever that experience that we contact, it's either pleasant, it's unpleasant, or it's neutral, somewhere in between. And if we observe that, what we see is our very strong conditioned tendency is that when it's pleasant, we want to keep it, we want it to stay, we want it to come back when it goes away. When it's unpleasant, we want it to go away, we want it to stop. And when it goes away, we want it to stay away and not come back. And when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, our tendency, our habit, is really not to be interested in it at all. And just disconnect, be disinterested. 
What happens when we do this is that when we get identified with that wanting of the pleasant to stay, we start thinking about how we can keep it. And rather than actually even appreciating that experience, we get lost in thinking about it, thinking about what we did to make it come, what we can do to make it stay, what we've got to stop happening to prevent it going away, and we disconnect ourselves from what's actually going on. Equally with the unpleasant. What arises when we feel the unpleasant is very often it's the tendency to try and get rid of it. And when we believe in that, when we don't see that reaction in our mind and in our heart, what we start doing is thinking about where it came from so we can figure out what to do to get rid of it and what we're going to have to do in the future to stop it coming back once we have got rid of it. And in the same way, we start getting lost in all that thinking about, which is really just, in a way, getting lost in the aversion. And we disconnect ourselves from where we are because we're projecting into the past to find out where it came from and into the future to figure out where to get rid of it or how to get rid of it. And equally with the neutral, what often happens when it's neutral, often we actually don't even notice that it's there. We're not interested enough to observe it. And sometimes this is why the breath is quite difficult to attend to because often it's just the breath and we can sometimes think, well, just like all the other breaths, you know, just another breath. Not particularly exciting, not particularly difficult. Why bother? Why pay attention? And very often with the neutral, what we do is we actually space out. We enter into fantasies or we, we think of something to, to want because we think that that will be gratifying, that will be more meaningful to us than just staying connected with the neutral experience. And again, what happens is we disconnect ourselves from where we really are. And it's very important to understand, and much of this practice is very much founded on the understanding, that it's that disconnection from where we are that is what fundamentally causes the suffering and the sense of being dissatisfied or finding our life to be inauthentic or unreal and unmeaningful to us. It's that disconnection that occurs when we identify with the wanting, with the not wanting, or with the disinterest. And that separation is so painful. And we can sense sometimes in the moments when we actually connect when we can just be with that pain in our knee or with that difficult emotion that's there, just for a moment perhaps. Or when we let go of trying to get the perfect mind state or observe the perfect breath. When we just let go and let ourselves just be for a moment, sometimes we have a sense of a quality, a quality of being that touches us deeply in a way that we can't perhaps conceive what's happened or why it touches us, touches us but we know that it does and we feel nourished, we feel healed, and we can feel inspired by that simple touch. And so it's important to look at what it is that stops us being connected, that the kind of ideas or belief systems we have that, that support us or encourage us to go down those old roads, those rather familiar old habits of acting out our wanting this, our not wanting that, and being disinterested in everything which is in between. To see that so often the idea comes up when something is there, that we, we don't want to be with where we are. We're not okay with how things are right now. And often it comes as a sense of, 
I don't want to be with this because it hurts, because it's painful. And we feel in some way that, why should I have to be with the painful experience? What have I done to deserve this? I'm doing my best to live my life as well as I can. I'm not wishing harm on others or myself, at least as much as possible. And, and yet we, I think, need to understand that 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 way of looking at it, that way of that way of relating, of saying, I don't want to be, when we get identified with it, we need to just accept that, yes, sometimes life hurts. Not all the time, but sometimes it is painful. It's the nature of life that that is part of it. It couldn't be otherwise. And yet that's not some, some message of gloom, because equally, in opening to the fact that life is painful at times, we can open to the fact that it is equally rich and joyful and sweet at times. Because in staying connected to what is difficult and painful, we equally allow ourselves to stay connected and to be present for that which is truly nourishing, truly sweet and rich. Sometimes when we say to ourselves, I can't be with this, I just can't, it's too much. Sometimes what we really mean is, it's very difficult and I don't want to. And we, I think, need to understand what's happening in that case, because I can't makes it sound like it's not possible. Whereas recognizing that I don't want to shows us, in effect, that there are possibilities open to us. Now, sometimes it is the case that it is too much, that something is too strong for us. We do need to be able to back off. But doing that from a place of balance and a place of wisdom and compassion for our own well-being, rather than feeling compelled from a sense of I can't and fear of the experience, being willing to touch the difficult and the painful, and if that touch is strong enough for us to know that oh, maybe right now I need to give this some space, then we can back off. So in working with a pain in, in the back, we might just really feel our way into it, let ourselves feel it. And we might come to a point where we really have to say, oh, I think I need to just stretch my body, move my posture a little bit to bring some ease. And that's fine. But when we see the mind coming up with, I can't be with this pain for another moment, just to think, can I just be with it for one moment at a time? Often when we say I can't, it's because the thought is, I can't be with this for another 40 minutes, or another week, or the rest of this retreat. I just can't do that. And we can't, you're right, you can't do it for any time other than right now. Because you're trying to do it in your head. You can't do it there. You can only ever do it in the moment you're in. And so just when you face that sense of I can't, to see if you can bring yourself back to, can I for just now, just this moment, be with this difficult experience? And often when you ask that question, you find, well, actually I am. Because <laughs> I'm here, it's here, I must be. It's, it's not that complicated. And yet what also comes sometimes, what often stops us feeling willing or able to, to be with, to open to the difficult, is that we have a sense that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the situation. There's something wrong with this meditation technique. There's something wrong with what the teacher is saying. There's something wrong with someone else. The Buddha probably wasn't really enlightened. Well, the person beside me would only stop doing what they're doing, then it would be alright. There's something wrong with them. Or, perhaps most painfully, 
we feel sometimes there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with myself. Otherwise this pain wouldn't be happening, this difficulty wouldn't be there. And again, we have this idea that there's something wrong because we really don't want to have to feel the painful. And yet we don't say there's something wrong when everything's pleasant and enjoyable. We actually tend to think that that's something right. And yet right and wrong don't really apply to that. Right and wrong are to do with really questions of ethics and whether we intentionally engage in ways of harmful activity or non-harming activity and beneficial activity. So it's much more, rather than thinking and relating in terms of right and wrong, which are so loaded, so charged, just coming to sense that it's really about the fact that it hurts, that makes us makes it difficult for us to be with it, to stay with the difficult experience. And that it's not that there's something wrong with us. It's not that there's something wrong with the situation. It's just that life does include pain, equally as it includes pleasure. It includes sorrow, just as it includes joy. And there's some beautiful lines from the Prophet where Khalil Gibran speaks of of this and, and the relationship between pain and and happiness, between sorrow and joy. And some of the metaphors he uses I find very powerful that the the one line that the that the the music from the lute which soothes your soul, that the lute has been carved with knives, hollowed with knives. The sense of something which can bring us great joy has been carved through pain, perhaps, to that instrument. That the, the cup which holds our wine has been burnt in the oven, in the fire, to be able to do that. And that these things come together in our life. The, the presence of the one, the difficult side of that, does not mean something is wrong. Being present really requires that we be willing to be with what's happening, to really open to just what is right now. If we're not able to do so, we spend our life running away and yet failing to escape from the difficulties of our life. Because it's not, as I said before, the difficult things themselves that are the problem. It's our tendency to believe in and to identify with that movement of desire or aversion. Now we we need to look at what it means to really be with our experience. And I think a good place to begin is to understand that we can't be with our experience in order for it to go away. Because as a well-known teacher, Ramdas, once said, if you, you can't be with it in order for it to go away because it knows. <laughs> it really does. It knows. And we're really not being with it if we want it to go away. You know, We make a deal, well, I'll be with it as long as it's just for five minutes and then it's gone. It's not being with it. Being with it is actually where we say and where we find that place in ourselves where it's okay whether it stays or it goes. And it's greatly supported by understanding that all these experiences, the ones that we might want to keep hold of, to understand that they must pass on. 
And therefore, so we don't need to hold on to them. We need not chase after them because it's their nature to come and go. And equally those things which are difficult, which are painful for us, that we think we need to try and get rid of. To understand that it's in their nature to come and therefore their nature to go, that we don't need to do anything to get rid of them. And, and from that place we can find a sense of balance, of steadiness, where we can just be with what is. Be with the experiences that do reveal themselves to us. And in learning to let the experiences be, we learn to let ourselves be. And perhaps this is one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves, to let ourselves be. To not put pressure upon ourselves, trying to make ourselves into the perfect self, to the perfect person. But just trust that what is occurring around us and within us is what needs to be there, and that we can rest in our capacity to observe it, to use each experience as an opportunity for learning, rather than setting up experiences as a problem and other experiences as the solution. And remembering that always the problems tend to be those things we don't like, the unpleasant thing, and the solutions tend to be the pleasant things we do like, but that we're in control of neither of them. They come and go according to many conditions and circumstances, some of which we can influence, but which we cannot control. So letting it go, letting it be, to understand what this means for us, what a gift this can be to us. And in this again, letting it go, sometimes we think, well if I let it go it should be gone, shouldn't it? Um, and we think, well I know when I've let it go because it'll go away. And that's really not what it's about. Letting go, what that means is letting go of our tendency to be caught up in the desire or the aversion in relationship to the experience. Letting go of wanting it to stay. Letting go of wanting it to go away. Whatever it might be. And being actually just willing to feel that desire, that movement of desire, to be with that. To be willing to be with that experience of, of aversion, of wanting something to go away. To be with that, to feel what that's like. To let it be okay that it's there without having to act on it, without having to do anything about it. The the very um, greatly respected and loved Indian sage and saint of the century, Nisargadatta Maharaj, once said that freedom from desire is not the absence of the arising of the desire, but the absence of any compulsion to have to satisfy it. And to see that we can actually find that space within ourselves where wanting, not wanting, can arise and yet we don't actually have to satisfy it. We don't have to do anything about it. We don't have to get rid of it. And we learn not to struggle with the content of our experience. A Tibetan teacher once gave this definition of equanimity. That equanimity is to receive those experiences which come to us and to let go of those experiences which leave us. It seems rather simple. It's of course quite challenging because the tendencies and habits of the mind can be so ingrained. But to imagine what it might be, imagine the transforming power in our life of bringing that spirit to our experience moment by moment. 
bring that attitude to our life day by day. And knowing that even in the moments where we actually get lost, get caught up in the wanting, get caught up in the aversion, get lost in the realms of the mind, thinking about this, thinking about that, that even when all that happens, in the moment that we notice it's happened, in that moment, rather than having to be critical of the fact that we were lost or upset because we were seduced by the desiring mind once again, rather than being upset by that, in that moment we can actually meet it with a place, from a place of balance. We can actually say, oh, that's what happened. There's no need to be upset about it. There's no need to be angry with ourselves for it. But just, oh, that's what happened. And begin again. Begin again. And so we find a place of balance with our experience, a place of balance, which doesn't mean that we become passive or that that we never respond to what's going on, but that any response that's necessary comes from a place of stability, from a place of actually being connected with what's happening and clear about it, rather than reacting to it. And so then we're actually able to respond much more fully, much more skillfully, and in ways that serve us much more deeply. So we might find that someone says something to us or does something which is painful to us. And being painful, we might tend to react to it. And if we react by striking out verbally or physically perhaps even, we see how that very rarely solves the problem. In fact, often it leaves us feeling worse, leaves the other person feeling worse. And yet, if we can just be with that movement of anger that might arise, let ourselves feel it. And then from a place of balance, speak with that person about what is difficult. Or speak with ourselves about what we find difficult in our own life. Finding ways that perhaps we can address it from that place of balance. So being with it doesn't mean being passive or that we don't respond to our life. And in being present with each moment, with each experience, it's rather rather useful to, to bring a quality of gentleness, of kindness, to our experience, particularly when it's difficult, and to actually sense that it's, it's actually a quality of the, within the nature of our attention, within the nature of mindfulness itself. There's a, there's a quality of, of kindness, because when we, when we learn to bring a sense of kindness and gentleness to our practice, to our experiences, to ourselves, and equally to others around us and all of our lives. As we learn to do that, that there's a sense that we, I think we start to understand that to receive our experience, to receive our life with kindness, is actually expressed by allowing it just to be as it is. That there's a real kindness. It doesn't mean we always sort of have a warm, overflowing, heartfelt sense of, of kindness to everything. It's not going to be the case. It doesn't happen for anyone but that just letting things be is actually an expression of kindness. It's a gift. It's a gift we offer to ourselves. It's a gift we offer to others. And, and this gift is very precious, is very powerful. And we can actually connect with it in the moments when we find that we are struggling with what's going on, when we're trying to get rid of things or change them from being the way they are. If we can just sense that in that moment, rather than feeling, oh no, here I am caught up in judgment, anger, frustration, resistance, whatever it is, rather than getting caught up in that, rather than being sorry or 
concerned about that, we can say, oh, here's an opportunity. Can I let it be? And that very recognition of that opportunity is an expression of wisdom and an expression of compassion, of kindness for our own well-being. There's a story that's told of an old Tibetan lama, a great master in his lineage, who's coming towards the end of his days. And so he spoke to the next most senior lama. Lama's a a teacher and a, a monk in the Tibetan tradition. He spoke to the next most senior lama and said, When I die, you will now be the leader of our lineage. So remind me before I die that I I must give you the highest and most important teachings, which I have not yet transmitted to you. And so every day, the the next most senior lama would come and say, Master, you, you must give me this transmission now before you die. You must tell me. And every time the, the, the senior lama would say, oh, later, later. And after the going through this process a number of times, the, the senior oldest lama is very ill and the, um, the next lama is rather concerned that he's going to die. Please, will, you must tell me now. And the, the older lama says, yes, I think it is time. So now listen carefully to what I have to say. For when I die, you will become the head of our lineage. You will become the teacher of all these other monks and nuns and all the lay people, the Tibetan people who follow us and support us. And when you are their teacher, they will come to you and there will be problems and difficulties that they will have. They will be experiencing sorrow and pain. When they come to you with their sorrows and their troubles, be kind to them. This is the highest teaching. This is the most profound transmission. And there's a way in which sometimes we think that we're looking for something perhaps more than that. And perhaps there are other ways of understanding and expressing depths of wisdom. So the Dalai Lama, when asked what his religion was, spoke in response, my religion is kindness. And to think what it might be in your practice, to sense that in, in your practice, each experience that comes to you is like someone who comes to the Lama with their troubles, with their joys, with their sorrows, with their life. Each experience that comes to you asks to be listened to. Asks to be listened to. So to be there for it, to listen to it, and really asks to meet it, to be met with kindness. To bring that sense of the highest teaching to our meditation practice is to to be present for each moment, for each experience with a sense of openness, with a sense of gentleness and kindness. And in that we really give the greatest support to the unfoldment of our spiritual life, to the deepening of the wisdom and the compassion, compassion which lie within us and which merely await for the, in a way, the environment in which they can emerge. And so we very much are cultivating that environment, that inner environment of presence, of interest and attention, and equally of kindness and gentleness. So, can we sit together quietly for a minute or two, please?
beings be free from pain and fear. May all beings deepen in understanding. May all beings abide with kindness. 